This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Let's talk about the humanitarian crisis that is going on right now on the southern U.S. border, where people seeking asylum in the United States are being detained in greater and greater numbers in border patrol facilities, and they are bursting at the seams. Now, U.S. Congressperson Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been attracting some criticism in recent weeks, sparked by her description of these facilities as concentration camps. Here's what she said in a social media post last month. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border, and that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. I want to talk to the people that are concerned enough with humanity to say that we should not, that never again means something. Now, when she said that, when she posted that, of course, it just blew up, right? Drew so much criticism from people, even from Democrats like New York mayor and presidential candidate Bill de Blasio. When that story first broke, Hazel Sanchez from CBS2 News in New York explained the political reaction. The post by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez likening the Mexican border crisis to concentration camps triggered an avalanche of criticism on both sides of the political aisle. Even Ocasio ally Mayor de Blasio blasted the comments. They are entirely different realities. I respect her greatly and I feel very close to her in terms of philosophy, but of course she was wrong. You cannot compare what the Nazis did in concentration camps, unfortunately, is without any historical, I mean, it's a horrible moment in history. There's no way to compare. Reporters asked Ocasio-Cortez about border security, and she's not backing down on her choice of words. We've had 24 people die in these concentration camps that Trump has established on our border. And what they want to do is politicize it, warp it, turn it into a controversy, con- controversy about words, instead of turning it into a controversy about why kids are dying on a border with U.S. dollars. Republican minority leader Kevin Kevin McCarthy called Ocasio-Cortez's comments embarrassing. She does not understand history. She does not understand what's going on the border. To take something that happened in history, where millions of Jews have died, and equate it to somewhere that's happening on the border, she owes this nation an apology. Congressman Jerry Nadler did offer some support to the congresswoman, saying on Twitter in part that we fail to learn the lessons of the Holocaust when we don't call out the inhumanity in front of us. In the newsroom, Hazel Sanchez, CBS 2 News. So two different views there, and that debate has continued in the United States. Is it wrong to say the U.S. has concentration camps? Our next guest knows a lot about this. She is a journalist. She is a historian. She's the author of several books on this topic, including the one that's really important here called One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. Her name is Andrea Pitzer, and I spoke with her before we came on air this morning. And here's the first part of our conversation. Thanks for having me on. Has there been a debate like this before? Oh, the debate over what to call these things goes back more than 100 years. And to actually one of the first two examples of what were called concentration camps um, in about 1900 in southern Africa, the British opened up camps for women and children that were beset with overcrowding and disease and malnutrition. And tens of thousands of people, mostly children, ended up dying in them. And they were holding the descendants of Dutch settlers that were known as Boers. And in the discussions of these Boer camps, the government insisted on calling them refugee camps, but 
they were the ones who had burned the land and the buildings and forced everybody behind barbed wire. And so a cry went up in Parliament that, no, they were not refugee camps, that the government had created the situation and had made it worse on purpose, and that they were concentration camps. And that was actually the name that stuck. But that was one of the first times that it was used. Interestingly, in those same camps, there were uh, people begging the British to send soap for basic hygiene for children. So even the soap and toothpaste issue that we're seeing on the U.S. border goes back more than 100 years in these kinds of camps. Right. And how, how do you define then what is happening in the U.S. right now? Is this an argument that we have seen, as you said, more for 100 years? Well, yes. Um, if you look at uh, there were camps that the U.S. ran in the Philippines uh, about the same time that those Boer camps were open. And even though we had condemned other camps that had already existed in the world, there were people who insisted that these Filipinos that we were putting in uh, camps, again, mostly women and children, that's most of who died, more than 10,000 people died when we had them in there, that we were actually civilizing them, that it was good for them, that we were doing something appropriate, and uh, that, that these were not like those other concentration camps that had been described. And if you look at World War II as well with Japanese-American internment, uh, you know, those fit the definition of concentration camp. President Roosevelt had referred to them as such, but there was an awareness at that point of the Nazi camps. And with the Nazi camps, uh, nobody wanted to be compared to that. So we started this elaborate renaming process of not using that term, mm-hmm. even though initially that's what everybody called them. One thing I think is really important to say, though, is that uh, there's one part of the distress over this that I really do understand which is that when people sometimes hear the phrase concentration camps, they're thinking of Auschwitz and the death camps. It's important to know there are no camps in history, anything like those death camps. That was actually a literal extermination camp system that was added on to the existing concentration camp system, but mostly separate from it in Nazi Germany. So there's nothing else in history that is like those extermination camps, and millions of people were murdered in the Holocaust. But before those death camps came to be, a concentration camp system had existed in Nazi Germany for almost a decade. And it's that early part of that system and much earlier systems even than that across four decades. That's what I'm comparing to what we're doing on the U.S. border. You have said that the process of normalization, quote, when a bad camp becomes much more dangerous is not unusual. How does that happen? Well, there's sort of two things that happen when you open a camp system. There are predictable things that almost always happen if they're kept open for a long period of time. Overcrowding, disease, uh, and often it's diseases that wouldn't kill people if they were you or me and could get to a doctor and not be uh, hungry and not be cold and sleeping on concrete or on bare ground. Uh, Just things like influenza and uh, sepsis can develop in some of these conditions. And this is what we've already seen in the border camps. And so that normal process of shoving too many people into unsafe conditions is going to make them sick and kill them over time. But in addition to that, the longer camps are kept open, historically people begin to sort of turn their eyes toward other possibilities that those people can be used for who are in the camp. So it might be for forced labor. Um, It might be let's start putting other groups into detention. And an example that I've used a lot is in the 1990s in the U.S., there were waves of tens of thousands of people fleeing Haiti and Cuba. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. picked them up at sea and put them in Guantanamo. And they held them there and they didn't know because they didn't want to let them apply for asylum. And there was no sort of sense on the ground of, for those people of what the process would be, whether they would even be allowed to apply, what was going to happen to them. They were kept in terrible conditions. Again, tens of thousands of people. There were riots. 
There were HIV people who were set up in a segregated camp and not given medical care. Mm -hmm. Uh, The courts had to intervene. The battle over all that ended up sort of leaving Guantanamo in a gray area legally, which is what allowed it to be used the way it was after 9-11. So there's an example of uh, right. migrants, you know, seeking refugee status or seeking asylum seeker status, who then uh, sort of, it sets the stage where there's a camp that does remain open for a period of time and then becomes something much worse. Your work is so startling because it lays out quite clearly how historically it's almost like the response has been the same, right? We uh, argue, society argues about what do we call these places? Oh, what are these places? And yet they are still continued to allowed to exist. Well, every government who has ever opened a camp system, and I mean, I went to four continents, I was sneaked into camps that are still open today in Myanmar. I mean, I went a lot of places. Every government throughout history who's done this has said, our camps aren't like those other camps. And also, these people that we're detaining deserve it, or they brought it on themselves. That is always what is said, and it is never the case. And so I think Uh, I understand people's reluctance to sort of compare this to the death camps, but that's not what I'm doing. I think using the name is important because it tells us, first of all, what's likely to happen next, because we can look at history for the examples of what typical things have happened. But it can also tell us uh, this idea that we are in a state that is more than just opening a detention facility or two. Mm -hmm. We have created a polarized situation in American society And we have a bad system that is in place that's very dangerous and could be much worse. And we need to think of how to undo that system. What is going to happen next, like if you look at history? Well, if you look at history, I think that um, for the U.S., that if the Supreme Court ends up getting involved, unfortunately, they may very well uh, sort of legalize this by half measures. They may cut back on some of the worst abuses, but by not addressing the whole spectrum because they can only consider the questions brought before them. They may end up legitimizing some of this. Um, You may see it sort of institutionalized beyond just President Trump's administration pushing it. And I do think it's also worth saying several prior administrations have a hand in this. They made it possible to commit the kind of abuses Mm -hmm. that we are seeing today and and actually created some of those tools and committed some abuses themselves. Courts have had to be involved for decades in this process already, but what the Trump administration is doing is driving it off the cliff. And I think the danger, you're saying what would be coming next, it is unusual in a democracy to detain a group of people that you have the president and people around him actively vilifying, actively denigrating this group of people. Even when we've done this in the past, there's been lip service to we're going to let these Japanese-American detainees out. This is just a security measure for now. Nobody's saying they're evil people. You know, on the official levels, there wasn't that kind of rhetoric. But the fact that we have official rhetoric that has literally been coming out of President Trump's mouth since the day he declared as a candidate, I think the way that society and, and his base is going to be pushed to do more harm to these people on the ground level, I think is very concerning. Is there a case in history, Andrea, where public pressure resulted in a government making changes or stopping what they were doing? Not in a really simple way. I mean, so that's the bad answer. The the better, the slightly more helpful and hopeful answer um, is that there have been things, even in police states, there were people in Nazi Germany that stood up publicly against the euthanization of the developmentally disabled and made a difference on that small 
uh, frame, you know, not for the whole camp system, not that kind of thing, but some of those abuses. In the Soviet gulag, people in the camps actually struck, you know, they were forced laborers and they went on strike. So people who did things in the past at tremendous risk to themselves can sort of provide a model to say, if you think this is wrong, we live in a democracy. Most people can go out and they can make donations, they can volunteer, they can run for office, they can write their representatives, they can protest. There is sort of no limit to what people can do. I think given our current situation with the split House and Senate, where the House would very much, I think, want to address this, and the Senate seems very much inclined to go along with the president, um, it's unlikely that that is going to resolve the issue. I don't see the issue being resolved by the being resolved by the administration, and I see the court maybe in a problematic role or unwilling to stop it. So I think that that kind of direct action by people and raising awareness of what is actually going on in these places is probably the best step. But there is one other good piece mm -hmm. of news, which is you really have to train people to do this. This doesn't happen automatically. It requires a government or a party to spend years uh, demonizing a particular group. Uh, creating conditions in which the larger community will tolerate them being locked up. And so it isn't an automatic process. It isn't an inevitable process. If it has to go through these stages to happen, then those stages can be wound backwards and undone. But I don't think it's going to be anything simple. Andrea, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for this discussion today. Thank you for having me on. That is Andrea Pitzer. She has written extensively about the issue of concentration camps. And yes, she says essentially what is going on down in the U.S. can be described as such for uh, decades, as she pointed out. For more than 100 years, governments have tried to call them something else. Uh, but that is, and she has gone to them all over the world, she said, and researched them. And that is what is going on there.